So, how long we got? Where's our destination today? I don't know. We got 20 miles to cover. Let's talk some movies. People don't know how to drive. You see anything good recently? Not really. Right, we got a little time, Steve. Let's do a podcast. Sounds good. I'm Steve Haskin. And I'm Andre Shane. We're back uh, driving around uh, the snowy streets of wintertime Chicago. Right. How you doing, Steve? I'm good. We're going to try and do this podcast in uh, one take, right? No edits. We're just going to oh, bang through this whole thing. You know, I didn't, I didn't think about that. Okay, all right. That sounds good. No edits. <laughs> or cleverly disguise them if, we, right. uh, if you drive into like uh, an under. An overpass. Right, unless something catastrophic, ha which it could at any moment, which is, of course, what makes Film Driven the most exciting podcast <laughs> on the radio. That's right. How many other podcasts could you maybe get in a car accident while recording? Absolutely. I don't know. Uh, we could get pulled over. We could get friggin' <laughs> carjacked. That would be a very special episode. Almost, as, <laughs> almost as dangerous as uh, trench warfare. Oh, my goodness. Trench warfare sucked, Steve. If all the warfares... Doesn't look fun. No, yeah. Of all the warfare. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. And it was also the last war that they used uh, cavalry in. So there's a lot of horses, and of course a lot of them were dead in the yeah. film 1917. And 1917, which is what we're going to talk about today. Exactly, right? exactly. 1917, Sam Mendes, uh, big Oscar contender, Steve. Yeah, kind of late in the game, too. Yeah, yeah, kind of a late arrival. Uh, I, I do want to make a quick side note. If you watch the Golden Globe Awards, uh, as I did, you will know that uh, whoever the marketing uh, advertising company for 1917 literally spoiled the big award in, uh, in the Golden Globes. <laughs> Neither here nor there, yeah. but 30 minutes before 1917 was announced as the best picture in the dramatic category on the Golden Globes, a commercial came on that said that 1917 was going to be the best picture Oh, I on the Golden Globes. Wow. Yeah, it was one of those. They had a they had a card just in case, and I think they ran the commercial early. That's they didn't really, really know it was yeah. going to be, but that's how it turned out. They might me. have. I mean, like the Golden Globes aren't necessarily the. Uh most integrity-filled awards. You're by. saying they leaked it to the studio beforehand, and then they incorporated I mean, uh, it into a commercial that was aired half an hour. I'm the only one in the universe to notice that, by the way. That's yeah. it's it's a, a, you feel well, very special. Quick aside about the Golden Globes. I know you know this, Andre, but for any of our listeners who are unaware of of all the awards that can be bought, the Golden Globes are at the top of the list. That, they uh, are. You know, the Oscars are voted on by thousands of people but the golden globes are voted on uh, it's like 85 yeah 85 alcoholics yes absolutely it's a bunch of uh, the hollywood Easily. foreign press if you're ever wondering who those people are they're uh, people from other countries who come to california and write and, about hollywood yes and famously that how you win a golden globe is if you host say a brunch brunch and have your star yes come to uh come to the brunch and then uh, take some nice pictures with all 88 members, then uh, guess what? 
the Golden Globe is yours. Uh, I mean, listen, at this point, like, Brad Pitt could get a Golden Globe Award for taking a shit, you know? Probably, yeah. But, uh, which, and he did get one, but but not for taking a shit, for yeah, his no, awesome no. star turn in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I thought was great, but, you know, it was a weird category. I kind of wanted to see Joe Pesci win. Yeah, well, but uh, but apparently uh, Joe Pesci is actually famous for not going to brunches and taking right, pictures, right, so. and I don't think he was there, and and I don't think he won, and yeah. and he didn't win, and I don't think he's going to win the uh, the Academy Award either, um, even though one could say that he was, you know, just from an acting perspective, yeah. a little better than Brad Pitt, but that's subjective. I digress, Steve. We got sidetracked. We oh, uh, went so. on a side mission. Yeah, on a sojourn. I'm sorry. I'm going to make a sharp well, right turn right now. That uh, that kind of goes with uh, 1917, Andre. I don't know about you, but sometimes my mind would wander while watching this movie. Because uh, this movie, for, um, I mean, we're going to spoil parts of it as we usually do. So you probably know by now, 1917 is a, it's a movie with a gimmick. And uh, that gimmick is that it is designed to look as if it is one continuous shot. Uh, it is not one continuous shot. It's similar to uh, Birdman, for example, in that they're, yeah. they're cut points that, you know, if you're an astute film goer, as someone who knows how movies are made, you can mm. kind of see them. But, yeah, but it, or every time the frame goes black. Yeah, but it, it is, uh, it's designed to look like it's one shot as you follow these two soldiers on their quest to uh, warn a battalion about an impending attack. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's... Uh, it's extremely well done, um, but my mind would wander in parts of it. Andre, mm -hmm. I don't know. What yeah. do you think of 1917? Well, I mean, it's definitely a, a movie that's based around a technical concept. Because outside of that technical, the, 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 the gimmick, as you called it, which is an illusion of a continuous shot that follows these characters through the action, um, it is a gimmick. I'm sorry. It's sure. not critical to the plot. Uh, the plot is minimal. It's just a basic mission. Get from point A to boy, point B. Hand a note over to Benedict Cumberbatch. Okay? That's the, basically the plot. Yeah. Uh, so the technical conceit, this gimmick, becomes so central to what the film is. And I think it's so central to the success of the film in the theaters. Uh, because people look at it as an event, it's something different, something they haven't seen before, and I think that that's drawing a lot of people into the film. Yeah, and I don't necessarily think of gimmick... I know it sounds like it's a pejorative, but it's not necessarily a bad thing to me. That You know, right. you can have an interesting idea. And somewhat related to that like I am in favor of you know like not every movie has to be uh, quote unquote about something you know I'm not Agreed. saying that you know this movie does is has topics and themes but you know it's there's something to be said for like oh it's wowing people with like just filmmaking they're like Absolutely. come on in and uh, in, in a weird way that reminded me of uh, Avatar which I actually you know I think this movie's better than Avatar but Avatar part of the thing is like you know, I genuinely, like, oh, I hadn't actually seen anything quite like that before. Well, that's what works in the theaters these days. It's, yeah. it's event films. And some of these event films, um, you know, are better than others, obviously. Uh, 1917 is a very, very good movie. It is not a great movie. 
Sam Mendes, likewise, the director of 1917, is a very good director, but he's not a great director. Yes. Uh, and um, what I've only seen 1917 once, so there's obviously details that I'm going to appreciate. But if I were to look at the technical achievement of 1917, just just the technological movie making aspect of the film. I would give it probably an 11 out of 10. It is staggering, Steve. Absolutely staggering yeah, as, a, I mean, as, it's, uh, as a technological achievement. The cinematography is by the great Roger Deakins. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. you and I are both longtime fans of yes. Roger Deakins. He, uh, for a long time, he was the guy who somehow never won an Oscar. Right, for, right. Despite years and years of just fantastic work. Fantastic, and then yet finally, subtle. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes... Uh, He's too subtle. We'll get to that in a second. But he did finally win for uh, Blade Runner... 20, what's that? 49. 2049, yes. He I did could, win for that. He did, and deservedly so. Yes. It's one of the most beautiful films I've ever and seen. And the odds are he's probably going to win again, right? Yeah, I would say, I if, like, if there's some kind of a bookmaker listening who wants to take all of my savings, I would put them all into betting on Roger Deakins Roger to win Best Cinematography. Yeah. I think it's a shoe-in. Whether the film wins Best Picture, I don't know. Whether it deserves Best Picture... I don't think so, Steve. Yeah, I don't either. And here's uh, here's my issue with it. It's I, I felt very emotionally removed from what was going on. And the question that I kept asking myself, well, uh, well, slight digression. You said your mind kept wandering into various things. My mind kept wandering into the process of the filmmaking. Yeah. And now that's a chicken and the egg thing about it. is that unique to us as our knowledge of like our own filmmaking? Yes, like, you know? I think I have to take that into consideration because yes, it is me, and I always, I always look for filmmaking things, and it doesn't really subtract from my enjoyment of the movie. But in this case, I was so engaged in the technological mastery and the technological tricks that I was looking at. How did they do this? How did they achieve that? How, and, and most of it, again, was very, very subtle. And the subtlety is what makes it so great and so enjoyable. So I do recommend seeing the film in the, in the theater. But at the end of the film, I felt very emotionally somewhat cold. Yeah. I mean, I have the same. I have friends who, you know, do not, have not studied filmmaking as much. They just, and they, you know, who liked it way more than I did. They were just blown away by all of it, including the emotional aspects of it. Right. They, they felt much more invested in the journey of the guys. Right. And, uh, you know, I will say that they, the performances are very good. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, there's not too many little, a couple surprises at the end, but, you know, that's kind of where you do want your surprise casting yeah. is at the end. But, yeah. Uh, and that, that's an old movie thing, which is, like, if you know your hero's on a journey to get somewhere, then, like, you know, you maybe cast a fun a fun actor or a bigger name as, like, oh, who's the person they see at the yeah, end? Yeah, yeah. That's well, great. There's a little of that, you know, sort of guest star thing that's happening in this film, and I have no issue with that. That's fine. Uh, there was no crazy casting, you know, all of a sudden, like, you didn't see Judy Dench as one of the generals or whatever. <laughs> uh, it's, it's So it, it all kind of made sense. It seemed very authentic. Once again, technical art direction, all of that stuff. Top-notch. Some just amazing. Yeah. Uh, and yet, at the end, a little bit removed. Now, I have to also say that there, I've seen some brilliant masterpieces of cinema that also left me somewhat emotionally cold. Uh, I would say some Stanley Kubrick films have a tendency to leave you somewhat cold. 
Eyes Wide Shut certainly did. With the benefit of years, you can say, well, that's still a masterpiece, even though it may be on the low end of the Stanley Kubrick scale of masterpiece. But at the same time, you know, time will tell how 1917 holds up. But Well, I think one of the things that left me a little cold, oddly enough, is that apart from the, uh, the one-shot gimmick, is as a war movie... Um, it had things to say, but it had things to say I've heard many, many times before. Right. Like, you know, I, I trench warfare seemed really shitty. It also seemed kind of pointless. Right. It does the war, you know, that it's the, the stereotype that uh, all war movies are, you know, anti-war movies. But this one, you know, has a thing that I personally find in a lot of war movies, which is that... At some point in the movie, you just kind of sigh to yourself, like, man, what a waste this is. You know, like, just right. the slaughter, the death. It yeah. all seems kind of Some pointless. movies are more anti-war movies than others, and yeah. I would say this one is, is, is very much in the middle. I don't think yeah, that this exactly. is Yeah, exactly. It doesn't necessarily make movie. an argument that, you know, it's obviously from the point of view of uh, the British Army, and it doesn't make an argument that the British, that what they're fighting for is pointless, but it does, you know, you do get a sense of a lot of these guys are dying for, you know, did that have to happen in this way at least. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. But that, you know, and there's surprise, when I say surprising, it's like, you know, on their journey, they encounter little moments of grace or, you know, just when they, sometimes there's a moment of brutality that's unexpected. Sometimes there's a moment of somebody being helpful that was unexpected, but all of it. Like, if you've seen other war movies, all of those beats you can almost see coming a mile away. So it's a bit like just watching... Um, yeah, we just had, an accident. <laughs> almost had an unexpected moment of brutality right, right. in front of us. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's a bit like watching someone tell a joke you've heard before. That, you know, that the joy isn't kind of like, oh, how's he going to tell this differently? But right. that's... I didn't... I mean, was there a single moment in the movie? I'm not talking about, like how it's shot but like just in terms of story was there anything in the movie that you're like wow i've never seen that before i uh outside of the technical no yeah no absolutely not and and i will also say that i there's a lot of things in this film where i've seen it done better and i'm gonna like even go recently I'm not going to have to go back to Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory, one of the seminal World War I films. I, I could go back to a couple of years ago to Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk and say that that was a stronger film across the board. Yeah. You know, and, Which, and had that visceral thing down quite a bit more than this one did. Well, and even in a non-war movie, you know, another movie that came out recently was Uncut Gems, mm -hmm. and uh, which... I, I quite enjoy it. I think you didn't like it as much as I did. But walking out of that movie, like, you know, the whole point of this movie is for you to feel immersed in this world. Right. Right? And designed to be viscerally engaged. Yes. Uh, that's the whole that's the whole thing. Yeah. And I felt more immersed in the uncut gems world. Like I walked out of that movie feeling like dizzy, like I've been running around you know, the jewelry district of Manhattan for two right, hours. Right. Whereas this, I felt, you know, I did not necessarily feel immersed. I, I, like you said, the cold, all of it I felt like I was watching a bit from a distance. Right. Right. I felt emotionally separated from the whole thing. I felt like an eye of God observer who was coldly viewing these very, very brutal events unfold in front of me and 
I never left that mind space. Yeah. I never left it. And I think that brings us to really the central concept of what 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 I want to talk about at least that I want to talk about Steve. You want to talk about something else. I don't know. To me the question is is the technical gimmick of a single shot a plus for 1917 or is it in fact a minus which creates an interesting question can you t central technical conceit actually subtract from the quality of the film and that if the answer is yes or maybe and to me i have to say the answer is yes then we have to sort of say this cannot possibly win the best picture because it, it's a movie that intrinsically undermines itself. Well, I guess the, my only counter to that is, as we said, you know, if we think most of the beats in this movie are unoriginal, then that's the, the counter argument is it's the only thing it has going for it. <laughs> that if we had this exact same script, uh, this exact same storyline, but shot in a more conventional way, I don't know that this movie would get much notice at all. Well, I mean, I, obviously, uh, there's a lot of very talented people involved in it, and you know, a high, a Hollywood prestige war movie always gets a little bit of attention. But you yeah. know, if this was just shot conventionally, I'm, yeah, I'm not entirely sure it would get any sort of buzz. Right. Well, I mean, I don't know about buzz, but like, and and, and you know. Obviously, both of us are on the same page on this note, Steve, is that we don't particularly care about how successful a film is. We will... Yes. Its quality has nothing to do with its success or buzz. My point is, and my counter-argument to your counter-argument, is if the only thing it has going for it is the very thing that undermines its quality, then what does it really have going for it? Yeah. You know? and, 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 of course, that brings us to the question of the one-take technique and its overall effectiveness in how it's used. Because 1917, besides not being thematically particularly original, is also not being really technically original from a one-take perspective because other movies have used that technique. Sure. Going first, I, what I believe is its first use is uh, 1948, Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, Rope which used yeah. it very differently. And Rope, I mean, uh, so now there's there's a bunch of movies that kind of use this technique. Of course, since major, then there's been other Well, films. a major uh, breakthrough, of course, is shooting movies digitally. Whereas one of the big conceits of Rope was that, you know, Rope was shot on film. There was no video. Mm -hmm. And you had to change... Um, Film, like you know, your yeah, you had to canister. change your film reels you every ten reel. minutes. Yeah, was yeah. it ten or something ten. like that? Yeah, yeah so about that's ten what. You know, so for all anyone the who's shots. Ever seen rope? Right. All the shots are almost exactly ten right. minutes, or right. maybe like nine and a half or something. And then the uh, you know Hitchcock added the other fun gimmick where when it was time, you know, when you're about to hit the ten minute mark, a lot of times you'd maybe zoom in on a on a rope of some kind. <laughs> well, I mean, he, it wasn't a matter of zooming in. I just watched the film last night, so it's pretty fresh in my mind. Is he basically came up with ways to kind of hide the edits? Yeah, this was the concept. So, so but he even went, then, at the same time, I remember watching. It's I haven't seen it in a while, so I guess. Uh, but 
uh, Rope had a similar problem that compared to other Hitchcock movies, it loses momentum. It actually feels a little draggy. Right. And, uh, and it does feel like the conceit overwhelms the movie. Right, right. I, I actually rather love Rope, and, and I, I think, I think the, that conceit, uh, the the one shot, the one take conceit, is maybe used the best in that film that I've ever seen used, because it's it it is somewhat self conscious, but the action basically the way the way that that's used in that film is it's sort of like you're watching a stage play. Rope is is basically yes. a theatrical stage play. All the action is seen from one angle, so you don't get cameras swooping around actors. You essentially have one angle and side. So, so imagine the camera pointing straight out or 90 degrees one way, 90 degrees the other way. That's it. That is the extent of the movement, but it moves in and out, and the cuts are disguised with usually when the move when it moves behind something where something completely blocks the frame, which is pretty much identical to the way 1917 uses it. But 1917 deals strictly with action, whereas Rope deals with dialogue because it's a play. So people are just talking, talking, and talking, and talking. So you get kind of, you're either caught up in their conversations or you're not. Yeah. Like a play. This one is different. This one just follows action. Conversations in this movie, I'm talking about 1917, there's not much brilliant conversation going on. Am I wrong? I mean, yeah. it's, it's pretty, pretty basic stuff, nothing amazing. You know, just describing what's happening. So it's a slightly different approach. And here, I feel the approach works less effectively than than in this sort of a play situation. But again, it's been used in other films, right? I mean, the one, the big one previous to that, is Birdman, and you mentioned that. Well, are, are we going to mention Russian Ark? Because Russian well, Ark to me was a big yeah. Like, we it, could talk about the Russian Ark, but Russian Ark is is like nobody's seen it, and and. Uh, I just recall that one was another one. Again, it was a more, you know, maybe among people like us or art film lovers. Mm -hmm. But it was a very buzzed about movie of the time of like, look, somebody did this whole thing on the Steadicam. And uh, Russian Ark is, man, that, that's a pretty boring film. It's a very boring. It's, uh, it's a very boring film. It's it's cool. It's cool visually. It's cool. You wander at its um, uh, aesthetic beauty, and you wonder about the how everything is choreographed. The choreography in Russian art becomes sure. your main concern. But a Russian art deals with things very differently. The camera in Russian art it represents you literally. Yes. So as the camera is moving through the Hermitage uh, or the Winter Palace, as they call it, whatever, they, 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 and that's. It's you, in fact, who are moving through the Winter Palace. And when other characters come out, they look directly at the lens and are talking directly to you. Usually they're saying pretty nonsensical stuff like, come on, walk this way. Nobody's actually conversing to you too much. But some people are giving you lectures. So there, the camera is a character. We're talking about a literal break in the fourth wall. That is not the case in 1917. Other characters aren't talking to me in that film. So the floating camera is basically the eye of God. You are just an observer. And that is, is, and, and that is the, the, how the, the technique is used completely differently in a film like uh, The Russian Ark and 
used differently still in a film like Rope, where the camera is the audience and you are part of the audience. Now, now you are sort of an omni, all-knowing, omniscient eye of God. Sure. You're following everything. And being in the role of the omniscient eye of God, Steve, separates you from the action. It does a bit, yeah. And uh, but you are right, going back to prior to this, Birdman was another um, one like this. But what's kind of interesting to me about Birdman is while Birdman did have this gimmick, um, it wasn't like the primary selling point of the movie. Right. Like people, when they talked about, you know, if anybody recommended Birdman to you, like that might be like the third thing they would mention. You right. Know? Like or it the was, second. Yeah, but it wasn't. Like, oh, my God, you have to go see this movie because of the way it was shot. But Birdman uses the camera very similarly to the way 1917 does. It does, You're also an uh, omniscient eye of God. And and the camera's moving around a lot. Right. And um, and it's it's hidden. Like, similarly, they're not, you know, Russian Ark is one shot. It was uh, one digital camera. 90-minute shot, yeah. On a Steadicam. That was it. And... Birdman also had, you know, had a series of cuts they would disguise in various ways. Right, right. Again, very well. I yeah. Mean, uh, yeah. Um, well, it's the it's what they're trying to do. It's it's not whether the, it's actually one shot. It's whether it's designed to appear as though it is a one shot, and that in itself is is the, the that's it. So, like Roger Deakins said, like the longest shot in 1917 was eight minutes long. The the takes yeah. aren't as long as you think they are. Yes. Uh, but but an eight minute long take is a huge take when. People are moving through a lot of terrain and, and you know, traversing rivers and stuff like that. Sure. So, you know, not, not minimizing that, but it's just important to remember. If you split, you know, a two-hour film by, if you divide it by eight, there's a lot of shots in it. It's true. It's a good point. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, but getting back to Birdman. Birdman uses the technique the same as 1917. And there's a, a German film called Victoria from a few years back that uses the technique exactly the same as 1917. So I haven't seen that. Yeah, well, how, how is that? What's... Single take. It's sort of a heist film. Once again, it loses your attention. And, and it loses, to me, it loses an emotional connection with every single character. Because, Steve... And I'm going to patent this this statement right here is film is a language. And if you're only using one kind of shot, which is a follow wide angle steady cam shot, it's the equivalent of writing a play using only verbs. You are losing a bunch of your tools, very, very critical tools. The most important being a close up. Yeah. You're losing these things. Or severely undercutting them uh, for the benefit of a a gimmick. Now, this movie, I thought, handled that better than some of the other ones. Yes. In that, I mean, I I liked Birdman better as a film, but Birdman, you're right. It's more original. A lot of it is done in, like, medium Mm -hmm. to wide shots. Sure. And this shot, I mean, Roger Deakins, he's done this on other movies, but he does a pretty good job about the blocking of, uh, how much him or Sam Mendes, where planes of action like he really makes good use of you know sometimes someone's passing close to the frame sometimes things are in the background so mm-hmm. like that's how we can kind of fake the close-up Absolutely. is that like he still has enough depth of field that 
you know, actors who are very close to the camera are still in focus. Of course. And blurry. Um, I mean, there's close-up moments in the film where the camera moves close to a character. There's very tight close-ups in the film. Yeah. Uh, and, but again, because of that constant movement, and you know that the close-up will eventually truck out to a two-shot, to a wide shot, and so on and so forth, and you're just floating there, that, that changes. That changes the language. It changes how stuff is expressed. It changes how you identify with certain characters. And um, it's, uh, it makes things more difficult. And, it make, and the more genre pocket you're in, the more difficult it is to stick with it. That's my opinion on that. No, I'm uh, I'm with you. I think you're on to something about the yeah the limitations of it. That it, it's odd because you would think at the beginning it is more exciting. Like you yes. know, say the first like 20 minutes, of you're course. kind of like this is great. But then once you cross like the hour mark, you know, I remember in in 1917, right around the time when he uh, blacks out, like mm-hmm. around after that, that was when you know your your brain starts to almost just long for the variety of some different shots. Of course. Of course it does. And, and uh, it does move things along more quickly. But, but, but sort of comparing it to other films, like Victoria's a genre film. It's kind of a heist film. Uh, this one is a World War, II, World War I film. It's a combat film, still firmly in that genre. Both working within a genre, using this technique... I think places too much burden on the technique and undermines the movie. So the movie becomes all about the technique, like you said, and less about the overall impact of the film. So if you really care about, if all you care about is the technique, then this movie is for you. But if you want a more rounded cinematic experience, you're going to find yourself shortchanged. And it's the same with the film Victoria. It's the same thing with a film Russian arc. Uh, to some extent, you could say it's the same with Rope, but I think Rope handles it better as a stage play kind of approach. But um, I would say the best use of that technique, if you're going to u- use it for the entire film from beginning to end, in my view, is still Birdman. I think you're right. Yeah. I, I found that the most satisfying. And, yeah. Like- because it doesn't have a genre. I mean, because Birdman is not a genre film. It's a weird... Like, I guess it's sort of a backstage theatrical drama, but then it's also kind of weird and psychedelic and, and I, you know, it doesn't have a specific genre that yeah. I can slot it into. Yeah, I mean, Birdman's an otter film. I mean, to me, Birdman's almost like a satire, and uh, it's, <laughs> like, briefly digressing to Birdman for a while. It's, to me, a lot of people I know, your enjoyment of Birdman kind of hinges on uh, how seriously you take Michael Keaton's character. Yeah. Like, you know, like I, I felt the you know, the movie itself was almost half mocking him. Right. Whereas, uh, you know, I had some feminist friends who thought it was just like a celebration of this great man and therefore they were kind of offended by it. But I'm like, I, I feel like the whole thing's kind of making fun of him. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, Birdman I think was like a better overall movie. Right, Let's see right. how this goes. I, so where do you think uh, this ranks on a... This is the fourth movie that Sam Mendes and Roger Deakins have done together. So if we want to talk about some of the other movies they've done, they've got a collaboration. Roger Deakins... Yeah, they got a good um, collaboration. He tends though. to work with some directors uh, multiple times. Most yeah. specifically, he's... He made a whopping 12 movies with the Coen brothers. Right, right. Well, his work with the Coen brothers is... Yeah, it's, it's amazing, and and what's and and again, it's subtle. The guy's very subtle. And, well, that's, and what, that's you, what you were talking about. Yeah, and um, 
I remember specifically in 96 that I was in film school and all of me and my friends were like, well, he should win for Fargo. Because, I mean, just, it's in the snow. And, yeah. I mean, that movie's gorgeous anyway. But, yeah. like, and I think uh, whoever shot The English Patient won. But we're kind of like, well, I don't know, painting your camera across the desert is... Yeah, English Seems Patient is a, a beautiful bit movie. though, than... Uh... Well, I mean, English Patient is a kind of Oscar bait that that, sure. that could, well, in many ways, pre... Going back to my more Predict more 1917 yeah, exactly. winning, yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? It, it it has the patina of what of a kind of film that should win the Oscar, when in fact another kind of film should win the Oscar this year, yeah. in my opinion. But, but so they started working together in 2005. They made this movie called Jarhead, which, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I've not seen. I haven't seen it. I want to see it. So uh, it's a you know it's, it's another war movie. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's an it's an Iraq war film. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. I want to see it. So we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, uh, but then after that, they did, uh, I think the very next one was Revolutionary, Revolutionary Road, Road with, yeah. uh, with DiCaprio. That film I did see, beautifully shot, not a great film. I would say, again, in, on, the, on a long list of uh, Sam Mendes, good films, but not great films. It's family drama, sort of couple disintegrating, the relationship falling apart, genre uh, that just so entertaining to everybody. <laughs> uh, you know, I uh, I didn't see it at the time, but I recall your uh, review of it was that uh, if I wanted to see people yell at each other, I could come to your house, <laughs> and you would at least feed me. <laughs> so I th- I thought they should put it on the poster. <laughs> That's I remember I remember seeing that. Uh, I I remember I remember like kind of feeling that when I saw the film, but. Uh, in retrospect, it's not a film that has an enormous impact on me, as is the case with every single film Sam Mendes ever made. Well, uh, the uh, so I'm curious about this one, because uh, their third collaboration, which I would argue is maybe the best movie they've made together, is, of course, the James Bond movie, Skyfall. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Skyfall, um, you're more of a James Bond head than I am, but uh, totally yes. but uh, as a kind of casual James Bond fan, uh, I felt like Skyfall is one of the Probably in like my top ten of Bond movies. It's uh... yeah. I mean, it it could be um, in terms of ranking. I don't know. I, I have very mixed feelings about Skyfall. On the one hand, I love it, and and I, I love what Deakins does on it. Uh, on the other hand, I think it's an incredibly stupid movie. And I, by stupid, I mean within its own like James Bond world that they've set up. It, sure. It it has like gigantic plot holes that are never explained and it has bizarre choices that happen within the film that make no sense to me and make no sense within the the larger James Bond world and make no sense within the continuity of the Daniel Craig films. Outside of that, it's quite enjoyable. <laughs> well, that's uh, what, so as someone who wasn't as invested in the world, yeah. I was like, well, it's gorgeous. There's some right. cool stunts. I had a nice time. Yeah, I, I, I don't love it, but I love I love it visually. Visually, it's the best-looking James Bond film of all, and that is very much due to Roger Deakins. Again, yeah, and that, I mean, Sam Mendes directed the follow-up James Bond yeah, movie, Spectre. which is really Ro- bad. And Roger Deakins was not involved in it. Right, he was not involved in it, but he, I think it was a scheduling kind of a thing. It, it, I think Roger Deakins was basically like, did that. You know, done that, so to, so to speak, crossed it off. Oh, yeah, I didn't mean to suggest like they had a falling out. I said more that, like, without you know, Roger if Deakins, you were giving credit sucks. to, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if you're giving credit to, like, if you considered Skyfall good, then the 
argument is, is it more Roger Deakins' triumph than Sam Mendes? Yeah. I mean, I obviously... It's more of a screenwriter. There's a gazillion that, things that go into yeah, any movie. Yeah, but that, that, film, that film falls apart at the screenplay level, same as Skyfall does. Yeah. Like, Skyfall doesn't have to be as stupid as it is, but it, it is mainly because of the... Screenplay choices. Well, that's what leads me up to back to 1917 that I find a little interesting about it and how, you know, how the gimmick is almost the story of the movie is that for all the praise and the buzz this movie's getting, like, most of it's going to the camera work. And for once, uh, Roger Deakins, who was overlooked for so many years, I feel like he's getting a... He's the star of the show. In right, this. like more than uh, more than Sam Mendes, more than the actors. It's mm-hmm. like uh, well, that's because he's the clearly the MVP. You yeah. know, he's the MVP of this film. And Roger Deakins, like if you if you judge them in terms of their individual artistry, like Roger Deaker, Deakins is a better director of photography than Sam Mendes is a director. Yeah. And that's basically what, and and it comes to a head in a film like that, which is so heavily dependent. And this is not to take away Sam Mendes' artistry. Sam Mendes, I, I respect him as a filmmaker, but his films are always just a little under par. Whereas Deacons is yeah usually knocks it. Well, I wonder if it's as simple as like Sam Mendes is a he's a theater guy who started making movies after, like, and he's gone mm-hmm. back and forth, you know, he, he mm-hmm. still does theatrical pieces after he started making movies, but, you know, it just kind of seemed like maybe at heart he's a theater guy, whereas Roger Deakins is very much, I mean, Roger Deakins is a movie guy. Right, right, <laughs> right. Well, yeah, yeah, and it's it's great. I mean, it's, what can you say? I, I like, like, what put uh, Sam Mendes on the map? The, American, uh, Beauty. American Beauty. American Beauty, starring... And he that Benning who, and, he uh, who shall not be named. Oh yeah, 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 Kevin. Spacey. You forget that that movie was literally a Kevin Spacey vehicle, and that actually got him his first Oscar and blah blah blah. But again, you know, a movie that was incredibly praised at the time, Brave, blah blah blah. Have you watched that lately? I mean, what? Yeah. What, what is up? Like, wh- why is that movie so good? Well, why is it- the legend of that movie is that he got really lucky, and that somehow Steven Spielberg saw it before it came out. Uh, and really liked it. So he... I like it too, but got, I mean... It's, well, I just mean, but that's what I remember that movie. I even remember at the time, like, before that movie came out, it was, like, one of the, like, you know, buzzed about, like, movies to look forward to this fall. And they're like, oh, my God, American Beauty's coming. It's going to be a juggernaut. It might wind up winning everything. And then the movie comes out, and you're like, again, not not bad, but you're like... What I was led to believe that some like cinematic masterpiece was about to be dropped in our laps, and then you're like, okay, well, it's uh... well, not only not bad. I mean, the movie is uh, like, like you know, I'm not a big politically correct guy, but like if you watch that movie, it is uh, what the kids today call problematic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not problematic because it stars Kevin Spacey. It's problematic because of what's within the film. Yeah. And it's and I'm not going to get into it because that's not our topic, but it's it, like that movie got an enormous amount of uh, accolades at the time, one best best picture, blah blah blah, and now you watch it and you're like, eh, I don't know about this movie. Yeah. And again, you're like, well, is it really a great film? So to me, it's more of a commentary on 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 the entire Sam Mendes career, which is a little like underwhelming to me. Yeah, but uh, again, not to take it away, he did win Best Director in the Golden Globes. 
He did. And that's, I mean, you have to imagine he did something on this movie that it is not just, uh, you know, that he's not like, go do it, Roger. I'll be over here having coffee. That, you know, a lot of the blocking and things you'd like to think. Yeah, yeah. This kind of, it's always a thing. You never fully know unless you're on the set, like the role between the director and cinematographer. Right. That, you know, especially when there are movies directed by uh, actors throughout the years. I mean, obviously there have been some very good actors turned directors but sure. you just always think about someone like say scorsese you know that scorsese thinks a lot about like all the shots how the right. shots go together like some i can't imagine you know i've never been on the set of a scorsese movie but it's hard for me to imagine that scorsese just shows up and describes like the plot of the scene and then lets the cinematographer put the camera wherever he wants. Right. You know, like no, I'm no, sure no. Scorsese he's does very it. thought out. Yeah. Well, but so similarly, like on a movie, say like Dances with Wolves, I don't know. I guess I'm a little skeptical that Kevin Costner has as much like input as Scorsese into like what lens is in what scene and things like right, that. Right. So, and Part of me, I wonder with Sam Mendes, with his theatrical background, if it's kind of like the way a lot of um, in the Hollywood studio systems work, where there were, you know, the, the the directors of those movies, there were exceptions, of course, but a lot of times the directors, their main role was to work with the actors, you know, much more like a theatrical director. Right. Like maybe they do the blocking around, like, all right, at this moment you get up from the couch, at this moment you go over here. But then the it was all on the cinematographer in terms of, like, well, what lens do I use? Where's the light coming in? You know, is this a wide shot? That sort of right, thing. Right. And I don't know. I mean, do you have any insight? <laughs> what do you think about a movie like this? Like, I, I, well, I don't know. I mean, clearly, what, what's, what's happening in a movie of, the, of this type is, you, you, since they're just using these longer takes on everything, it becomes a, a, a matter of choreography. So yeah. they choreograph everything. They choreograph it. They choreograph it. They rehearse it. They rehearse it. They rehearse it. Then they shoot it a bunch of times, and the best take wins, and that's it. And then they move on to the next take. So it becomes really a question of choreography where the director would work with the actors, make sure the performances are all there, uh, make sure your background is all perfect, so on and so forth. There's visual effects in this film that are very subtle, so you have to take that into consideration and so on and so forth. I, you know, I don't know. To me, this is a very kind of collaborative thing, but again, the director of photography seems to be almost more important than the director. But in Yeah, this case, I would think on a, like on a one-shot movie that the, the DP would just have a lot more sway over, like, what happens when? Yeah, or, you yeah. know. But Sam Mendes wrote the script and the story was worked out and so forth. So, so I'm sure it's a massive collaboration and so on and so forth. But, but again, it's it becomes all about uh, choreography. It becomes m the most choreography laden production outside of an actual musical. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't think it should win Best Picture, but uh, I'll also say. A majority of the time, the thing that wins Best Picture isn't what I think should win, so uh, right. I don't know. Right, right. We'll probably we, talk more about the Oscars some other time. We uh, could talk about the Oscars some other time, but uh, but I think I think my takeaway from this film is the whole one-take approach and its viability, and I think how viable it is in the film. And after our conversation here and my various amounts of thinking and research I've done for this... Kind of leads me to believe that a one-take approach is fantastic for individual sequences within the film, but are less effective 
as a gimmick for the entire length of the film. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, very much so. so uh, yeah. So, like the like, like if you take if you think about all the films that have these long choreographed single shot sequences, and there's a lot of films that do it these days. It's very hip, but you know the the very cool uses of it. Obviously, we all we all remember the you you got that great tracking shot in Goodfellas, and you have that super long take at the beginning of Touch of Evil, of where a car crosses with a bomb in it into Mexico, blah blah blah. That was the longest shot in movie history at that point. They also had, you know, they've used it in dramatic films like The Player. Uh, there's just tons of examples. Yeah, of these and one, one of my favorite uh, recent ones was uh, in the first season of True Detective. Exactly. It was a great, but you know the whole episode wasn't that. The but whole then, like, episode was not a but one. The take. climactic fight was, and it was right. And it was very effective. A big like, raid, a, fantastic. Yes, yes, I totally great. agree with you. But then you didn't have to have the one. You didn't commit to the one take for like people sitting around a table the entire know? hour. Yeah. Absolutely, and it works. It works better. The shot, reverse shot. You know, again, bringing in all of the vocabulary of modern cinema is helpful. It is a good toolkit to have. I'm going to mention another fantastic use of it, probably one of my favorite, and one of my favorite films of the last 20 years is in Children of Men. Yeah. The long tracking shot towards the end of the film where he walks in the building, rescues the girl, takes her out of the building, is unbelievable. And yet, when it's over, it's over. The movie moves on and at the end reaches a very, very powerful emotional crescendo using all the given tool sets of the language of film. So very effectively integrated into the movie, and actually there's an earlier one-taker thing inside the car that's also a masterpiece. Yeah. So a film could have several of these longer sequences that are breathtaking and absolutely keep you in the movie and keep you with the characters and excite you and do everything 1917 does. But it doesn't have to be used through the entire film. It doesn't have to be saddled with that. And um, that makes for a better film. I think I think Children of Men is a is a better film than well, 1917. Well, sure. And I think I'll... Alfonso Cuaron is uh, that guy's kind of a is master. A better director. Yes, we have we can say I I, I absolutely believe that yeah. as well. Well, I don't really have much more to say on 1917. Me well, neither, yeah. Steve. I'm just glad I'm not in the trenches. Jeez, That's I mean, right. even driving in the snow is better. But, uh, but 1917, one take wonder. There it is. See if you can spot our edits in this podcast. Absolutely. I'm going to try to edit it out, but, you know, maybe I should edit out that last part. <laughs> well, what did that even mean? <laughs> no, I'm going to say, I'm going to try not to put any edits in this thing, but it may be hard. Yeah. Well, we're we're masters at the uh... the hidden edit. <laughs> All right. On that note, we'll uh, we'll have you guys let us know uh, how good our edit hiddenness is. But uh, that's all for me. I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Askin. We'll see you next time on Film Driven. Whoa!